thank you for choosing to worship with us. Kids, you are dismissed up to Grace Place. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, that you can take that, keep that. Uh, that's our gift to you. We like giving Bibles away. If you know someone who doesn't have a Bible and needs one, like everyone, um, take one. Walk out with it. No one's going to stop you at the door. Um, please, we love giving Bibles away. So, um, as I said, you're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. Uh, and while you're turning there, I'd like to thank uh, our prayer team. Um, we realize that everything that we do here, if we don't uh, cover it in prayer, uh, it's going to be for naught. It's going to be uh, lacking. We go to God uh, with everything we do. It's why throughout our service we have prayer covering our service on Sunday mornings. Everything we do, we center in prayer. And our prayer team uh, helps us to do that. Our prayer team um, gets to, uh, later on the service, during the when we sing later on, the prayer team is up here to pray with us, pray for us, um, to just have the chance to go with someone else to the throne of God uh, and bring our, our joys, our worries, our concerns, our, our needs. Um, and we're able to just spend time with another person praying together. Those people also just pray for our service on a regular basis. Uh, so everybody in the prayer team, thank you so much. Um, prayer is a big part of our church. As you can see, if you're a guest with us and you see all the post-it notes all over the church, we had a prayer and potluck event about a month ago in which we literally covered the building in prayer. So all these post-it notes you see scattered throughout the building are different prayers and verses and um, just us trying to um, really center and ground ourselves in prayer. So everybody on the prayer team, thank you so much. If that's a ministry, that's something that you would like to be part of or just get more information on. Uh, you can use those connect cards Monica talked about to circle prayer team and we will get you connected uh, with them. So um, as I said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. Uh, and as we get in there, um, I want to talk about greatness. The conversation of who is the greatest of all time or what is the greatest is a subjective one. right? You have lists like the top 100 movies of all time, deep dish pizza or thin crust pizza. Cubs or White Sox. You have these conversations, you have these debates over what's better, what's the best, what's the greatest. And for all of the detail, all of the numbers and statistics, it's always a subjective argument. Anytime one of those lists comes out, someone has an issue with it. How could you put this movie ahead of this movie? Someone always has a problem with it. Greatness and this idea of the greatest really comes down to so many different nuanced details that it seems like the greatest discussion, who is the greatest of all time in any given scenario, could never truly be solved because it's so subjective. But today in our passage this morning, Jesus teaches us what does the greatest look like? What does greatness look like? And what does it mean to be the greatest. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into Mark chapter 9. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you, to sing praises to you, uh, to do this, to pray, to speak with you, to come boldly before the throne together, to open up your word um, Lord, as we open up the Word of God, I pray that the Spirit of God might move in us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus and hear what message you have for us today. You have us in this passage on this Sunday for a reason. 
It's not coincidence. It's not happenstance. It is your divine purpose that we are in this text this morning. You have a message for us. You have something you want to move in us, change in us, challenge us in, encourage us in. And so, Lord, I pray that we might be receptive to your word this morning. Lord, as I preach today, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another, Who was the greatest? And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This section, starting in uh, verse 30 and going through really the middle of chapter 10, is direct teaching from Jesus to the disciples. There's not a whole lot in Mark. Mark is much more focused with who Jesus is and what he's doing, uh, much more so than teaching. It's It's lighter on teaching than the other Gospels. But this section is a lot of direct teaching from Jesus to his disciples. Excuse me. Uh, And every day, it's partially because every day Jerusalem is getting closer and closer. From the middle of chapter 8 on, Jesus is focused on getting to Jerusalem, getting to the cross, getting to what we are going to celebrate as Good Friday and Easter Sunday, his death and resurrection. And Jesus knows that every day they are getting closer. Every town, you can see he's coming to Galilee, he's coming back. He had been out in the Gentile regions, and now he is traveling back home. And every day he gets closer, he knows that this time is important for teaching and preparing his disciples for what is to come in just a few short weeks. And so Jesus begins to teach in verse 30 on on his death and resurrection. For some of you, if you've been with us for a few weeks, this is deja vu. He did this once already. He did this at the end of chapter 8. Right after Peter proclaims, Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the one we have been waiting for. Jesus begins to very explicitly teach on the resurrection, on how Jesus will suffer, will die, and then three days later rise again. This is the second time of three different times where Jesus will straight up just say those words, I'm going to suffer, die, and rise again. And each time, what follows is a lack of understanding from the disciples. And then each time, as they don't understand, Jesus then responds with some kind of tangible teaching moment. The first time he had taught about them, he taught them about the resurrection, he followed it up with that progressive healing of the blind man. As a way of showing, look, disciples, you have this fuzzy sight. We need to get you to clear sight. We need you to clearly understand what's coming. This time here, he doesn't so much do a miracle as he does has a, a tangible teaching moment that we'll get into. And the third time Jesus tells them, look, I am going to be, the Son of Man is going to suffer and die and rise again, he then does another healing of a blind man. But we see that Jesus is, as I said, coming back towards home. He's passing through Galilee. And he wants to keep a low profile. He's getting closer to home where his reputation more than, exceed, more than proceeds him. 
And he's trying to avoid the crowd so that he would have a chance to teach his disciples about the things that the crowds weren't supposed to be know yet. Trying to teach them on the resurrection. And so he says in these verses, he talks about himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. We've touched on this already, but that reference goes back to Daniel 7. You can look at that uh, on your own time. In Daniel 7, it talks about one who would be exalted. One who would be given dominion and glory. All of the nations would serve him as king. But nowhere in that passage on what the Son of Man would be and do does it talk about him dying or suffering or a cross. You see, the Jewish people did not equate the suffering servant and these, issues, these ideas that Jesus is bringing up about suffering leading to glory. They didn't equate suffering and the Messiah. And so we see in verse 32, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Everybody's worst fear, right? You're in school, you're taking notes, the professor is lecturing, going on and on, and you're trying to, everything the professor repeats, you're writing down, stuff on the board, you're trying to catch, you're trying to write everything down, he gets to the end of the lecture, says, does anyone have any questions? And you sit and you look at what you just wrote, and you think about what you're thinking about, and you realize you have no idea what he just said for the last 40 minutes. Everything just went right over your head. But you don't want to ask. You're scared, right? You're embarrassed because you think, well, I'm the only one who clearly didn't understand what was going on. Or you're scared to have the professor think that you weren't paying attention, and so now you are trapped in your fear and your ignorance. But this isn't just one person. It says they all didn't get it. They all didn't ask, and they all should have. See, because when you don't ask questions, you forfeit the opportunity to learn. And so you have these disciples, Jesus is teaching on the resurrection, and you have these disciples, grown men. And Mark, you know, or Matthew leans over to James. You getting any of this? No, I have no idea what he's talking about. Peter, you know anything? No. Somebody ask him. Ask him what he's saying. No, I'm not asking him. You ask him. I'm not asking him. Let's have Peter ask him. Peter's normally the guy who speaks up and says things that nobody wants to say. Peter, you do it. You got to figure, Peter's like, do you remember the last time I asked him after he said something about resurrection? At the end of chapter 8, Jesus teaches on the resurrection. Peter pulls him aside and says, hey, no, the Messiah doesn't suffer. The Messiah, you need to cool that out, Jesus. And Jesus, in front of everyone, rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Of course they all remember that. Peter especially, and I'm saying, I'm pretty sure Peter was like, no, I'm not doing that again. And so now we have these grown men sitting, and no one is af- everyone is too afraid to ask a question. Let me encourage you this morning. If you have questions about the Bible, ask your questions. If there is stuff that you don't understand, as you walk through life, as you are walking in the Christian faith, ask your questions. It's a great reason why we have community groups. It's a group of people where you can ask questions. Find your friends. Find, grab an elder. Grab me. Don't forfeit an opportunity to learn about God or be embarrassed or scared to ask a question. Ask your questions. See, we look back on the disciples, and we've done this a couple of times. We look and we say, okay, Jesus explicitly teaches them on the resurrection. And we, being on this side of history, look at the disciples and say, how could you possibly not understand? How could you possibly miss the point here? How could you not put it together? But like I said, we have the luxury of knowing how this whole thing played out. But they were in the midst of it. 
Right? They were right in the middle. This is day to day. Can you ever think about a time, look back and see the things you missed? Look back, think about uh, an event you went through, a hardship or, or just even a good thing you went through, and then you look back after it's all said and done, you say, oh, look at how God was putting things together here. Or look at this thing that I could have walked into, but I, I chose something else, and I'm glad I missed that. Or I'm glad I did step into that and I ignored this other thing. Hindsight is 2020, right? And we can look back and we can see the, little bit, the picture a little bit clearer. But they are in the midst of it trying to understand one day at a time. But even still, we say, man, how did you guys not understand? But how often do we forget? How often do we ignore? How often do we just straight up leave behind the truth that we know to be true in order to pursue our own desires? The disciples' lack of questions and misunderstanding is made even more apparent in the next conversation they have, starting in verse 33. It says they get into the house, um, and they're in Capernaum, so this is potentially Peter's house, maybe not, doesn't really matter, but it says they're in the house. And Jesus asked them a question. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? What were you guys talking about while we were walking here? Jesus knows. Usually when Jesus asks a question, it's rhetorical. He's not looking to gain information. He knows. He knows what they were talking about. But verse 34, it says, Again, they were silent. They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. The first time they were afraid to ask a question. This time they're ashamed to speak up. They argued over who was the greatest among them. So again, you have these grown men and they're walking, you know, groups of twos and threes and, you know, and following Jesus leading ahead and them a couple of steps back because he knows where they're going. And as they're going, they're talking about arguing, debating who amongst them is the greatest. Who's the greatest follower of Jesus? What do you think started this conversation? Maybe it's Jesus' talk of death and, and this idea of, okay, well, if he's going to die, if, if he does do this death thing that we don't quite understand, somebody's got to take charge. So who's in charge when he goes away? Maybe if you go back into, into chapter 8, you see Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And they were off by themselves having this great moment while the other nine disciples were down waiting for them. And they run into a demon-possessed boy and they can't, uh, they can't get rid of the demon and they are embarrassed and they fail publicly. And so maybe from that conversation they're saying, well, why did those three get to go up on the mountain? We were stuck down here and we got into some trouble down here. What's, what's so special about those three? Maybe it's just the idea that they knew Jesus was the Messiah. They proclaimed it, they professed it, they knew Jesus was the Messiah. But their misunderstanding of who the Messiah was, that the Messiah, their thought was the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome, that it was time to crush the bad guys, and if Jesus is going to start a revolution, he's going to need a lieutenant. So who's next? Who's going to sit number two? Regardless of why, they're having this debate and they wanted to discuss it and argue it amongst themselves. But now, in front of Jesus, when he puts them on the spot, they are silent. The gravity of the situation hitting them, the realization that they were not in the right headspace at that time. And so how does Jesus respond to their silence? Verse 35, he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He sat down. That's an important spot here. This is uh, the posture a teacher, a rabbi, would take in the synagogue. 
during teaching time, unlike this, where I'm standing up here in front teaching, in the synagogues when the rabbi went to teach, when it was time for him to teach, he would sit down and everyone would sit around him. And that was time you knew it was intentional teaching time. This was a moment, this was a situation in which he was going to teach them something important and intentional. This was not going to be a caught, not taught kind of a moment. This was direct teaching from rabbi to students, and he wants them to clearly understand the words he says. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus recognizes in his disciples they have this quest for greatness, this desire for greatness. And that's a good thing. But it had become ugly and distorted by sin. And so instead of declaring ambition is bad, Jesus instead describes a pathway on which this distorted and ugly pursuit of greatness will be radically transformed into something beautiful. See, it's okay to want to achieve. It's okay to have ambition and drive. I mean, think about it. Whenever, you know, when a, when a famous Christian, when Billy Graham passed away last year, how many different people, myself included, posted on Facebook, if anyone ever got to meet Jesus and, and heard from Jesus, well done, my good and faithful servant, it was Billy Graham. Right? That's the, that's the goal. That's the goal for Christians is that one day you will die, you will meet Jesus, and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We have an ambition, a drive, to hear those words from Jesus when we meet him. Aspirations and ambitions are not bad. But what happens when sin enters into those things, when we make our ambitions either about ourselves, how we are going to be, sh- be known as the greatest, how it's going to be our name up in lights, or when your ambition and your drive is not really about you being the greatest, but rather just being greater than somebody else. I don't really want to be the best. I just want that person not to be. So I'm going to work to make sure they are not the greatest, but I am. Jesus here says, sure, go after greatness. Have an ambition. Have a drive. But to do so, to pursue actual real greatness, is completely the opposite of everything you have ever considered in regards to achieving greatness. This is almost a retelling of what he told them uh, when he talked about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? He said, deny yourself, take up your cross. Here, you want to be great? You want to be the greatest? Then you must be willing to be last, to serve, to put others ahead of yourself, to care for others, to see others receive, to see others succeed, even when that means you don't. It is then when you will find greatness. And it's not just a willingness, but an actual putting feet to, feet to pavement and doing it. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I'm totally a servant. I'll totally... When you have those moments, when you have the opportunities to serve, do you take them? We know Jesus did. It's displayed for us at the cross. It's there when he, through his suffering and death, He serves humanity by dying on our behalf in which doing so and being resurrected, he is exalted. He showed us this is what greatness looks like. I'm going to serve all of humanity by dying on the cross for their sins in their place and in doing so be exalted. I mean, you want to talk about who is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. And so when he says to them, you must be, to be first, you must be last and servant of all, this is not a hypothetical idea or a nice notion. It's what he's going to do, and it is what is required of anyone else who aspires to greatness themselves. 
And so Jesus, the master teacher that he is, takes this opportunity to drive the point home with a bit of an illustration. We see in verse 36, it says, He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. We don't know where the kid came from. Again, if it's Peter's house, we know Peter had a family. Maybe it's one of Peter's children. We have no idea. But it says he put the child in their midst, and then he took him up in his arms. So the kid can stand, but he's old enough, or like still small enough to be held. So like three, four, somewhere in that range. Jesus said, you must be last of all and servant of all. Interesting in the Greek, the word all means all. Children included. Little children included. And for Jesus to say that and use a child in this moment is countercultural to what's going on in society. Because at the time, children were not seen as much more than property. They were not really highly regarded in any way other than if you had a child, cool, you have in a couple of years someone to add to the workforce of your family. Someone who can maybe work a little bit and bring some money into the house. If you had a boy, he can carry on the family name. If you had a girl, maybe one day someone will pay you a dowry to marry her. But other than that, kids' importance were just the fact that they were tied to their dad. They were just kind of there. They were, you know, to be seen but not heard. At least until they became adults. So in those years from when the child was born up until they were 13... It was kind of just, you have kids, you have to deal with it. They had no status, they had no value or importance in that community. So when Jesus talks about receiving children in his name, he's showing that to truly be great, you have to serve even the very least of who society says is important. And so he brings in this child because they don't have a voice or status or importance. I mean, when you take care of a small child, when you take care of a little, little child, they don't say thank you. Most of the time, if they're little enough, they don't even know thank you. They can't even comprehend what that means. The child can't pay you back. They can't return the favor, I owe you one. They can't really even tell other people about the things you did for them. And as time goes on, especially in those early years of having a child, they aren't even going to remember how many times you wiped their butts or fed them. In light of all of that, Jesus says, serve them anyway. Love them and anyone else who is weak, anyone else who is hurt, anyone else who is helpless, anyone else whose society says, you're a second-class citizen, and expect nothing in return. Just serve. That's how you become great. Jesus is clearly teaching the importance of servanthood to all. Like I said, all means everybody. But he could have put anybody in that circle. He could have made this exact same point with any number of sick or lame or blind or poor that he routinely cared for over and over again. But instead he focuses on a child. And he echoes this same message about the importance and care for children later on. I want you to flip over, go to chapter 10, and you're going to go to verse 13.
10.13 says, They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Again, we don't know how old the kids were, but some were bringing him. It, it's maybe parents, maybe adults. It could have been little kids leading littler kids to Jesus. Regardless of how the situation came about, why kids just started flocking to Jesus, the disciples see that and try and cut it off and stop them. The disciples were not having it. They wanted their teacher to have some space and some rest. How quickly they have forgotten what Jesus taught them so recently. Jesus had just said, receive them, care for them, and in doing so you are caring and receiving me. And how quickly the disciples have skipped that. Verse 14, Jesus did not like what he saw from the disciples. It says he was indignant, greatly afflicted, displeased. He was unhappy with the the way the disciples were handling those who were trying to bring their children to him. And so he tells them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Two commands in there. Let them come. Do not hinder them. Let them come. Stop what you're doing and reevaluate what you're doing right now, disciples, and do not hinder them. Not only do not hinder them, but be helpful in getting them to me. It's not just get out of the way. It's be helpful and bring them to me. Why? Because to ones like these belong the kingdom of God. And we see in verse 14 and 15, why does the kingdom of God belong to ones like these, these little ones who might not even know how to spell their name at the time? How does the kingdom of God belong to ones like these? If you grew up in church, you often hear the phrase, have faith like a child. Right? We're supposed to have faith like a child. And what we really mean by that is be innocent, be pure, maybe even a little naive. Be like a child when it comes to Jesus. Don't question. Don't question the Bible. Don't have doubts. Just take what it says and move on. Don't use your brain. Just be like a child. Take it all in and move on. Firstly, that's nonsense. Kids have all kinds of questions. Weird ones. I taught a junior high boys Bible study for a lot of years. I got a lot of weird questions. We taught through Revelation. It got real weird. Kids have lots of questions. Question things. When you read the Bible, hey, you're going to have questions. Ask those questions. To think that to have faith like a child means I'm not supposed to question any of the things I hear or see, that doesn't make any kind of sense. And also, innocent and pure, in that same Bible study, one day, it was the first day for these two boys, they were brothers, we were talking, getting to know them, one of the brothers turned and punched his brother in the side of the head, unprovoked, He was talking about school and just turned and went off on him. These kids were like 10. Innocent and pure, I don't know about. The kingdom of God belongs to ones like these, not because of the virtues of these children, but instead because of the things these children lack. When a child, a small child comes up to you, they don't come trying to barter with you trying to negotiate with you. 
They come open-handed, asking, requesting, begging. A kid is a kid, small, powerless, overlooked sometimes, unimpressive. Verse 15 says, receive the kingdom of God like a child. A child has no clout, has no status, has no influence, nothing to bring or barter with. Anything a child does have, they have because of their neediness and the grace and provision of someone else. This reality that they have nothing to offer society at the time does not stop or embarrass them. They just ask for what they want. They just ask for what they need. Not trying to do anything but take care of whatever need they have in that moment. And I think that's where we fail as adults. Because we're too proud to admit we need help. We're too arrogant to think we can do it all on our own. And society says that you're weak and you're less than if you need help. If you need some kind of resource, if you need help from someone, you're not as strong as that person. But Jesus says the only way to receive the kingdom of God, the only way to get the gift that is being offered, is if you receive it. Which means coming like a child, hands open and empty. Not hands full of your self-declared impressiveness, but hands open and empty and ready to receive the gift of grace through Jesus. Realizing you can't bring anything to trade, influence, purchase, or impress him. Instead, come to him, hands open, asking for Jesus to forgive. Accepting the death of Jesus as payment and for your sins and the resurrection of Jesus as the declaration of the power and authority of Jesus over all things. A couple of last observations on these texts. Clearly, children are important to God. Jesus doesn't do things by accident. It is not a coincidence or accident that Jesus uses children in these moments. And he isn't just using them as props, but rather he shows genuine care and love for them. He picks them up, he holds them. At the end of, in, that, in uh, chapter 10, it says he lays his hand and he blesses them. He cares for them. He is, clearly has a soft spot for children. And note the instruction that he gave the disciples in both passages talks about being a help to meet, help children meet Jesus. Be a help to getting kids to know Jesus. In 937, he said, receive one such child, how? In the name of Jesus. Not just welcome and care for children, but welcome and care for children in the name of Jesus in a way that points them to him. 1014, let the children come to me, he says. Let the children come to Jesus. Don't be a hindrance, but help them come to see me. There is an expectation and command to helping children know who Jesus is. So parents in the room, do your kids know that you love God? Not do they know if you are a Christian. Do they know that you love God, that you enjoy him? Have they seen that modeled in your life? Have they seen that modeled in your family rhythms? See, the church is here to support and reinforce what should already be happening in home. We come alongside and we love and teach and encourage and point your kids towards Jesus. But just like for you all, if all you are getting, if the only time you're opening your Bible, if the only time you're interacting with God is Sunday mornings, 
If that's the same for your kids, that's not enough and you're shortchanging them. The church comes alongside, but the main disciples, the main ones who are to teach and raise up your children are you. Are you reading the Bible with them? Are you praying with them? Are you showing them the priority your faith and your church life and community takes in your life? The way you set up your calendar, the way you set up your family outings matters. As you make choices about how time is spent and where those priorities are, their kids are paying attention. And when they have the opportunity to decide their own schedule, their own way, they are going to be influenced by what you taught them. And some of you say, I don't want to force it on them. It's your job to teach them. Not just model it and hope that they pick it up, but to actually use the words and teach them. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. These things should be a regular part of your communication as a family. Now, if you're not a parent... Are you an aunt, an uncle, grandmas and grandpas, godmothers and godfathers? You might not be a parent, but you still have a responsibility to the kids in your family. You have an access and a voice in their lives separate and different from their parents that, let's face it, as they get older, they're going to hear you sometimes more than they hear their parents. You get to come alongside mom and dad to help guide and care for the kids in your family. You don't get a pass just because they're not your kids. As a Christian, you are to serve all. And maybe you're not any of those. Maybe you don't have any little ones in your family. Maybe you don't have any kids in your family. You got friends with kids? Again, modeling. Showing them in the way you live. Talking about it. Being a tangible representation of the love of Jesus in their lives. They see that. They're paying attention. How intentional are you in the lives of the kids of your friends? And tangibly speaking, right here, let's just talk real local, like in this building. We have Grace Place, our Sunday morning kids ministry. It is an amazing ministry within our church. Method-wise, I don't know how much you guys know about this, we, about a year, a little over a year ago, kind of revamped what we're doing upstairs. And, and Amy Jackalone put together this brand new, I mean, I've never heard of anything like it, to be honest. It's unique because everybody is involved in the teaching time. Everyone has a voice. It takes advantage of the fact that we are a multi-generational church. And so because of that, we're going to have lots of different voices, even the little, little ones. And so during teaching time, the little ones get to share what they think and what they feel. And the older and the adults in the room, they get to share. They take prayer requests from everybody in the room. It's a group Bible study. It's a group time of teaching just like this. It's just the age range is a little bit bigger. It's the coolest thing I've ever heard of. And honestly, it's different every week because it changes based on who's there, what's being read, whether or not people had naps, like, it's, it's a shifting, changing kind of ministry where it changes week to week. And spiritually speaking, it's an opportunity to serve the people Jesus told us are important to serve. It's 
literally caring for the weakest parts of this community, the children of this community. So let me ask you, if you're a regular attender or a member of CF, why aren't you up there? You might say, I'm not a kid person. Well, go back and read the verses we read this morning. And let me ask you, how do you reconcile I'm not a kid person with the clear importance and value of Jesus that he places on children? Because there is no amendment, there is no footnote that says this only applies to kid people. By being part of Grace Place, you are serving the families of this church. You are serving others in ministry because the more people we have in a ministry, the bigger rotation it is, the more times people get to take a week off and get to be part of grown-up church. You're also serving the guests, those people who walk in who aren't regular attenders, who aren't members of this church. You get to walk in, you get to help make them feel comfortable and know their kids are protected and cared for while they get to experience a brand new community. You might say, well, I'm not hindering any kids. I'm not getting in the way of them learning about Jesus. I'm just not being part of it. Do you really think when Jesus says, don't hinder the kids, do you really think that's what Jesus meant? Do you think he meant be neutral? Do you think he meant just avoid being a stumbling block? Based on his own affection for humanity and his clear affection for children, do you think neutral is what Jesus wants you to shoot for? Going back to 937, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. To serve the children of this church is to receive more of God in your life through serving the children of this church. It's a time of worship. You aren't just serving. You aren't just babysitting. You have the opportunity to worship God through service, but also through singing, through reading God's word, through prayer, through all the things that we do down here when we do upstairs with the kids. It's a time of worship. And a time to care, as I said, care for the weakest in our community. If you are already serving in Grace Place, thank you. As the pastor of this church, thank you for caring. Thank you for serving. Thank you for your willingness and your desire to be part of the legacy of these kids in knowing who God is and coming to know Jesus as their Savior. And let me say, as a dad of one of those kids... Thank you. Thank you for helping to teach my son about the love of God. Thank you for helping to teach him what it means to pray. Then when we go to sleep at night, he does this because we do this on Sundays. Thank you that this morning we said today's church day and he started going, church day, church day. Because he wants to be here. Now, granted, there's a big multicolored slide up there, so that's, but still. Thank you for helping to point my son toward Jesus. I'm so grateful for that. Guys, do not ignore the opportunity you have to be part of the story of God that he is writing in the lives of the kids of this community. Now, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to guilt you into anything, but right now, if you feel convicted, if you feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, you know what, that's something I can probably do, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in this moment. So respond. 
Monica talked about those Connect cards. On the Connect card, it says Grace Place. Go ahead and circle that. When we take in our offering, we'll drop a Connect card in the offering plate, and we will follow up with you. It doesn't mean you're stuck, you're, you're part of Grace Place forever. It just means I want some information. It means I'm feeling something, and I want to respond. It says, you know what, there are weak ones here that I can love and care for, and I want to respond to that. Jesus said clearly, you want to pursue greatness? Good. Do it the right way. Do it by being a servant of all, which includes those who don't, can't, won't give anything back to you for your service. Consider the kids, consider the children in your life who need to know that God made them and knows them and loves them. Now granted, that starts with you knowing it first. Knowing that God made you. He formed you. You have value and importance because you were made in the image and likeness of God. He formed you and he knows you. He knows all of you. He knows the good stuff that you love to put on Facebook and he, loves the, he knows the bad stuff that you want to hide from the whole world. He knows all of it and he still loves you. And he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. That's what we're teaching these kids. And so I invite you to come humble and open-handed, ready to receive from God. By putting your faith in Jesus and receiving new life and new hope. And once you have that, once you've received that, being ready to share what you have been given. We say a lot around here that when you, when you are saved, when you meet Christ, when you enter into becoming a Christian, you are saved from the wrath of God. You are saved from hell. You are saved from your sins. But you are also saved to be a blessing to other people. You are saved for a purpose. You are saved for a mission. Part of that is caring and loving for the weakest of these, the weakest in the community, the weakest that you know. You were saved from hell to be a blessing to all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for today, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the times when it challenges us, when it um, pushes us into sometimes uncomfortable positions, where it makes us look at our lives, look at the priorities in our lives and in our world. Lord, you call us to serve the weakest. You call us to love and care for the weakest, and you showed us how to do it. Jesus came and served and loved us while we were still dead in our trespasses. Christ died for us. When we were weak and helpless and hopeless, Jesus died for us. He didn't just talk it. He showed us what it is to love and to serve the weakest of these, because we were the weakest of these. Oh God, give us a heart like that. Give us eyes to see those people, those places, those situations in our lives where we can serve those who are weaker, those who are need to be served, those who need to be cared for. Give us eyes to see them and give us the boldness and the, and the energy and the perseverance and the, just get, help us to move in those situations. And Lord, when it comes to the children in our lives, God, help us to be that light you have called us to be. Help us to see the value and importance in caring and loving the kids that you have put around us. Those little ones that you received, the ones that you would 
take and hold and bless and care for. Oh God, that we might be those kind of people, that we might have some small role to play in seeing the kids of CF, the kids in our families and our friends, to see them come to know you at an early age, that they might walk with you for generations. Lord, that if we could get to play just even a small part in pointing them toward you. Lord, grant us the opportunity. Show us how to do that and give us the boldness to step into those spaces you have already laid before us in order to do that. God, we thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.